Esther, Esther chapter 2. Um, turn your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. And um, we're going to be going through a... Um, uh, I, this is a very, very interesting passage. And again, I've, I've said before, I have never preached through Esther before. Um, obviously, I've read it. I've went through... Uh, Sunday school lessons on it, and you know, did, did some independent study, but but digging in, getting ready to preach it, it's a whole kind of different experience, and um, it's very interesting to see uh, not only what's going on, but what has been said about what's going on in this passage throughout the the years. And there's um, this this passage is um, this is probably the best known of the passages of Esther. This is the the, some people call it a beauty pageant, some people call it other things, but um, as we look at it, we're going to see that it is very, uh, very different. It's been romanticized for ages, um, and Xerxes, if you'll remember, he did away with his queen Vashti um, because she had disobeyed him. Um, in the meantime, before the events of chapter 2, he had fought a war with the Greeks. Um, not the one that you probably know about, the one before that, depending on how much you know about Greek and Persian history. Um, but then he comes back and he's ready to seek a new king, uh, I mean a new queen. And so this has been idealized as a beauty pageant or even a, a love story um, about love at first sight. But really, if you want to get down to it, it's a human rights violation on the first order. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but we're going to see how the Lord is able to work through the selfish and evil plans of men to fulfill his beautiful plan for saving his people. So that's, that's the point of what we're getting at. So here's the sermon in a sentence. God can work through the schemes and actions of sinners to give favor to his people and bring his beautiful plan into view. So I'm going to read to you Esther chapter 2, verse 1 through 18. Um, once again, some of these names have been changed to protect the illiterate. Um, I cannot say how my Bible translates Xerxes, so I'm going to insert Xerxes there. Um, so we'll get there, and the other names I'll just kind of stumble over. Um, after these things, so Esther chapter 2, verse uh, 1. After these things, when the anger of King Xerxes had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of uh, his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. Let the young women who please the king, or let the young woman who pleases the king, be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa in the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemuel, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away when Jehoiakim. Uh, Jeconai, the king of Judah, from whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. I won't mention this otherwise. Um, 
Mordecai was not carried away in this exile. It would have been his great-grandfather that would have been carried away. If Mordecai had been carried away by Nebuchadnezzar, he'd be about 120 years old when this story starts. He seems a little bit more spry than that. So this would have been his great-grandfather that was carried away, so he was a second-generation exile is kind of the way to read that, or third-generation exile, kind of the way to read that. Um, Picking up in verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, Uh, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge over the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came uh, for each young woman to go into the king or into King Xerxes after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shagazah, anyway, that dude, Uh, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of concubines. She would not go into the king, um, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abhel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the tenth month, which was the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Okay, so we're going to be looking at this passage, breaking it down into basically three little parts. Uh, The first one, we're going to call it human ingenuity, divine sovereignty. Um, The author says that it was after these things. So after the things of chapter 1, these things happen. uh, But we know that some time has passed between the events of chapter 1 and chapter 2. 
The fateful night when Queen Vashti refused the king um, was somewhere during the third year of his reign, and we learn that Esther becomes the, the queen in the seventh year of the king's reign. So that kind of helps us to, to know the timeline here. So we know that the king, after the decree that went out against Vashti, um, the king was angry. He was burning with anger. He had to go fight a war. When he got back, he was ready to have a new queen. So there's some things that happened in there, but we also know that the regimen that these women went through lasted a year. How long did they spend collecting the women first? That's something we don't know. Um, but we know that some time had passed. The king uh, did lead this, lead this campaign against the Greeks, but that's not mentioned at all in the book um, because it's not relevant. Um, the anger of a king can burn for a very long time, and Xerxes seemed to be no exception, but eventually he remembered the loss of Vashti and seems that he was longing for a new queen. Um, there's actually historical evidence that the king eventually had uh, the wise men that, that told him, you know, make her not be the queen anymore, cast her out, never let her come back into his presence. There's, there's evidence that he might have had those men killed. Um, he was too, so displeased. And, and if you uh, remember the law of the Medes and Persians, they said this in the very first chapter, those laws couldn't be repealed. If they made a law, it was always there. It couldn't be repealed. It couldn't be taken back. And so if someone convinced the king to make a bad law, a law that he later disliked, a lot of times he would have them killed. That was, uh, that was kind of part of, of having the king's ear is there's a lot of responsibility and a lot of accountability. And if you made him make a choice that he didn't like, then, then he, would, um, he, he would sometimes have you killed. Um, but there were young men that were attending the king, and they noticed that he was lonely, um, that he was, um, he was ready for a new queen, so they came up with a very unorthodox strategy to fill the position of queen in Persia. So what they decided to do was very different. It was just out of the box. Queens were usually chosen from aristocratic families to consolidate power and unify the elite. So the king might make a marriage that was very advantageous for him, um, or a family may be looking to make a very good match by marrying the king. So any way you look at it, there was, there was never any love involved, and there usually was never any um, looking at the person and deciding if they were beautiful or anything like that. That just wasn't part of it. Usually it was for political reasons that you married, and um, the, the king's own mother, she had been the daughter of Cyrus the Great. So that was kind of the tradition was keep it within the royal family. Keep these marriages um, politically advantageous. But after the rebellion of Vashti, and we don't know a lot of her genealogy, but she probably would have came from an aristocratic family. She would have came from you know, some, some family of worth and wealth and those kinds of things. After that rebellion, the king was looking for someone that was going to be beautiful, young, and very submissive. That was the goal for him. And so these young men suggest that beautiful virgins from all over the empire be sought out for the king. Persia was not a country. It was an empire. Uh, last week we read that it had 127 different provinces. And so it spanned basically from India all the way to uh, Turkey that, that's right beside uh, Greece. Um, it, was, it, it, include, it went up north to some extent and it definitely went down south to the northern coast of Africa. Everything that you think of as the Middle East was part of the Persian Empire at this time. And so when the call goes out, we're not talking about just Persians, which would have been, a very, would have been expected. Most of the time, the Persian kings took Persian wives. But we're talking about every race that would have been represented in that area, Middle Eastern, African, all those different types of nationalities would have been brought in for this 
contest, if you will. Um, it was a time that, that, that people were probably wondering why. Why this way? You know, why a woman that, that not necessarily of any kind of worth or birth, um, meaning that all she had to be was a pretty face. She, she did not have to be from a certain family. She did not have to have a certain amount of money. There didn't have to be any political advantages to this. This isn't the way that things were done. And I think it's worth pointing out at this point that there was no other way that there would be a Jew that would be a queen in Persia except through something like this. People didn't do this. God made this happen. God established this for his purposes. So, in most cases, beauty was not a prerequisite to become a queen. Uh, and royal marriages, they, they rarely crossed any kind of class lines. Um, and, and while it is true that marriage almost never was never based on love in the ancient Near East, especially among the nobility and royalty, we should be aware that every woman that participated in this contest would be forever part of the king's harem. So just to kind of point out, not only was this not done, it actually was a pretty awful thing to do to all the women. So one historian tells us that there might have been as many as 400 women that participated in this contest. And of those 400 women, one was chosen to be queen. The rest of them spent the rest of their lives in the king's harem. They may never be called back to even see the king, so they lived almost as widows. Um, the ages here, there's no evidence to tell us what the ages here. It says that they were young. They were most likely unmarried. That wouldn't have been completely unheard of for a king to take another man's wife, but mostly they were going to be unmarried. Um, because of the way they describe Esther, it seems like she might have been more in the 16, 17-year-old range than in the 13 or 14-year-old range of, of some people that would be getting married at that time. Uh, but you're talking about a young lady somewhere in her teenage years being taken, um, her whole life being reduced down to the events of one night, and then for the rest of her life, she is in this, this harem. Now, people starve to death every day, and so these ladies wouldn't starve to death. People were homeless, people were, were threatened by attackers and all kinds of, you know, really scary things in the world. So they had it better than some, but they would never have a family. They would absolutely never see any of their male family members ever again. No male was allowed to see any member of the king's harem. That was just kind of part of it. So they were, they were locked away. They might be able to see female family members, but that's unlikely. This was kind of a rough deal for all these ladies. They went through all of this, this preparation for one night, and then all but one of them, the rest of their lives, was basically spent locked away, not being able to see anybody out there. So they lived virtually as widows for the rest of their lives. So one ancient historian actually suggests that there may have been as many as 400 women. Um, women were chosen from every province, so it was already likely that the queen would be a non-Persian and completely dependent upon the king's good graces. Um, if you were born to money and used to having money and power and influence, then being married to the king would be a step up by, by anybody's imagination, but you would have had some independence in your life. But if you come from a poor family, if you come from the wrong race at the wrong time, then this was, this was totally different. You had no other kind of hope, no other way to fall back, no other strength except the fact that now I'm in the king's good graces. That's all these ladies would have had. So when they, they would have been taken from their home, 
They would have been brought to the citadel and they would have been placed in the king's own house of women and guarded by his trusted eunuch. So that's how they would have been treated. So uh, the king's palace would have been more of a complex, just, just like it would be today in any kind of royal uh, residence. And so where the king's palace, where the king was, was like a government building. People came and went. There were meetings. There was all these kinds of things. Um, but on the same complex would have been forbidden buildings or forbidden rooms. Those would have been where the king's women would have been kept. And so these women would have been kept in a room or a building that would have been forbidden from anybody else to access. So, you know, heads of states, generals, military leaders, um, any, anybody else that might come to Persia to meet with the king, they would not have access to this place. This would have been kind of separate. And the king didn't have just one of these places. He had other places like this because he, this place was set aside specifically for this contest where there was another harem of women that were already either his wives or his concubines. So this is different. It's very, very different what he has set up here for these women. They would have been given the very best cosmetic treatments available at the time and they would all be vying for the spot that was vacated by Vashti. So money, once again, we see another example that for King Xerxes to get what he wants, money is of no consequence. Um, the, the spices that they do mention and the fact that there were probably other things going on, all of this would have been very, very expensive. Not just expensive, though, it would have actually been wasteful um, because what they were doing for a year could have been done in an evening or an afternoon or a week if you wanted to get really, you know, extravagant about it. But for a whole year, they go through this beauty regimen to make sure that they are as well prepared as possible for their one appearance before the king. So this plan obviously pleased the king. And it was therefore put into motion. These men said, hey, let's gather the most beautiful women from all over the kingdom, make it all about you, make it all for you, get them as pretty as we can possibly get them, and give you one night with each of them. The king didn't say no to that, right? He wasn't going to say no to that. So he agrees. He's part of this. And so, yes, this is human ingenuity. This is, this is some weird plan that happened to work, and it made, made the king happy. And humans can be very creative at times. It is part of the image of God that is in each of us. But just like all the other gifts that God has given us, it can be changed, it can be warped, it can be perverted, and it can be used for evil means. To look at this and to read it, you think, oh, so that's what they did. That was the custom in Persia. But it wasn't the custom in Persia. This was an experiment, kind of a, a twisted social experiment. It worked for Xerxes, but we have to understand that under almost any other circumstance when we look at this, this is about the king. This is about selfishness. This is about making him glorified, not about the women and certainly not about the goodness of his kingdom or, or the goodness of his people. So, again, this plan meant, plan meant that hundreds of women from all over the Persian Empire would have their entire existence reduced down to the events of this one single night. Um, so, uh, the, the thing is, all of these women, even if they were willing, even if they said, yes, this is a great thing, their whole lives were spent to satisfy one man's desires. This, this is what this was. So when we look at the world today and we say, oh, that's an evil plan, that's a horrible plan. Evil plans and horrible plans have been in place the whole time that there's been a world. As long as there's been, you know, two people, one person's been in charge and he's had a bad plan that's bad for the other person that's there. That's just the way of this world. But what we do know is that even in those bad and horrible plans that take advantage of other people, God can find a way to bring about His purpose and bring about His will. 
So the Lord used this selfish plan to open the door for Esther to become queen of the Persians. Those who possess power, they're always making plans to serve their own ends. You can look at it in our government or any other government in the world. You can look at it among all the you know, super wealthy, powerful people of the world. They all have their own ideas of the way things should be, their own plans of how to get things to that place. And those plans almost always harm innocent people. They're always working on those kinds of plans. But in the end, God's sovereignty rules. His sovereignty reigns. He can use those plans for the good of his people. Are people still going to get hurt? Yes, people are going to get hurt because people were going to get hurt. But in the midst of that, God can use his people to bring about something different. Just to reiterate what's at stake here, there is a plot that, that's kind of probably already hatched at this point to kill a whole bunch of Jews. That's the idea. And so Esther is being put into a position where she can speak to the king and change that event, change the course of history and save her people. So let's look at the next thing, human preference and divine favor. So it's 27 verses before we're actually introduced to the first Jewish person in this story. It's been all about Xerxes and Vashti and all these virgin women that are brought in. Basically, chapter 2, verse 5 is the first mention of a Jewish person, and that's Mordecai. Now, the author tells us about Mordecai. He's a descendant of the exiles, um, and he has adopted his cousin, Esther, who was a beautiful girl that had been orphaned. Now, the Bible actually mentions both her figure and her beauty and her appearance to help the reader understand why she might be chosen by the king. She was obviously an incredibly beautiful woman. That's, that's, the, that's the part that, that we just kind of need to be aware of. Like God had been preparing this from the beginning. He had been preparing her for that purpose. You know, when we grow up, we're, we're all told, or well, we all pretty much have been told, you can be anything that you want to be. Um, we're told that in schools, we're told that on TV. Now, maybe our parents say, no, this is what you're going to do. But for the most part, we are told we can do and be whatever we want to be. But the truth of the matter is God's preparing you for something. Not for anything, but for something. He's planned from the very beginning what it is that you're going to be doing. And in that time, when it's his will to reveal it to you, He's going to put you in a position to do whatever it is that he's prepared you for. So Esther, up to this point, you might say she's been prepared by becoming beautiful. She was, she was definitely, you know, one that people would have stopped and said, wow, you know, God did a good job there. But that wasn't all. That wasn't all that she was about. Because as we watch Esther, she operates with wisdom she operates under basically the, the Hebrew biblical principles of how she's supposed to, to behave and how she's supposed to conduct herself. She shows that she has faith and that she has morals throughout this whole thing. And when we look at that, we see that not only has God been preparing her, but he must have been preparing Mordecai and probably was preparing her parents before that. God's plan has worked down through the generations to save these folks. You know, that sounds a lot like our own salvation. God worked down through the generations, through the Hebrews, through the Israelites, through the kings of Israel, through the prophets, all the way to Jesus, preparing a way for us to be saved. And then after that, Jesus trained and raised up apostles to go out and to share the gospel with more and more and more people. 
Have you ever gotten really curious? I know that people like Ancestry.com, but have you ever gotten super curious? Well, what's the first person in my family to have heard the gospel? Just think about that. Like, how far back? Where were they? How were they living? Who was the first person in my family to hear the gospel? That would be really intriguing. So you think, my parents knew the gospel, my grandparents knew the gospel. How far back does that go? How far back was God planning to bring the gospel into my life? And what if you say, well, I didn't come from a Christian family at all. You're that one. And a hundred years from now, maybe some of your descendants are thinking, who was that first person? They may even find out that you were that first person. Just think about how interesting that would be. So Esther had been being prepared. Esther was taken into the harem with the other women who would compete for the position of queen, but she wins the favor of Haggai, the chief eunuch. This eunuch would have had amazing power, more power than, than most people in Persia because they had control over the women that would then be brought before the, the, the king. And so Esther winning favor here, this immediately reminds us of some other stories in the Bible. So he gives her the best place in the harem. That doesn't necessarily mean the best date to go visit the king, although I think that plays into it. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he gives her the best position. So he gives her the, 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 the best of the choice of, of, of beauty products, um, gives her the best of the choice of food, because we know that a healthy diet is good for you, but also the very best of the maids that are going to serve her. Now, if you read this, it's kind of hard to tell. Did all the women get maids from the king's service or, or no? Well, she received seven of the best, and so maybe there were others that were also going to serve other women, but she gets the maids that would have known what makes the king happy, what does he like, what, what's his preferences and things like that. So she would have gotten very good advice from these ladies that served as well. So one thing um, that we can definitely see here um, is that Mordecai has commanded Esther to hide the fact that she is a Jew from everyone. Uh, so she is unable to protest the type of food that is given her. If you think about exile stories, um, you can think about Daniel uh, and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, they rejected the king's food, the king's meats, because they were unclean. They wanted to just eat vegetables, and then they presented themselves before, you know, to show that they were actually just as healthy as everyone else. Well, Esther was not in a position to do that, and she was supposed to hide who she was. People have asked, why did Mordecai want her to hide who she was? Well, maybe he already knew that there was hostility in the land against the Jews. Um, everywhere the Jews went, it seems like they were incredibly successful and people didn't like that. And so maybe that's what it was. But for whatever reason, Mordecai thought it was prudent to hide who she was. And so she couldn't start making dietary demands. So she does hide who she is. Um, and this situation is, is different because Daniel, for everybody knew that Daniel and his friends were, were Jews. So although the Lord is not mentioned here, we can see his hand at work by granting him the favor of powerful people uh, to his servants like he did with Joseph. Remember Joseph, everywhere he went, Potiphar found favor in him, elevated him to the top of the situation. Um, the, 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 the jailer, when, when, when Joseph was finally thrown in jail, um, he was again elevated to a position of leadership within the prison. And then when he stood before Pharaoh, you know, he was, he was brought before Pharaoh as a prisoner, but yet he interpreted the Pharaoh's dream and he rose in power to be as powerful as anybody else was allowed to be in the kingdom of Egypt. God gave him favor. And the same thing is happening for Esther. It starts with the eunuch. The eunuch sees her. He, he has favor on her and she receives better than some of the other women receive. And so that puts her in a better position from the very beginning. So 
Mordecai had some limited access to Esther, um, which makes some people think that he might have been made a eunuch already by this point, but um, he has some access because he's able to pass by the harem and find out what's going on with her, what are they doing, what part of the process are they in, those kinds of things. So again, this regimen lasted for 12 months, and it was excessive at every point. So on the night that a woman was to appear before the king, she was allowed to take anything with her that she believed would please the king. So some women likely took beautiful jewelry, um, while others would have taken musical instruments in hopes of entertaining the king. We don't really know. It doesn't say whether they chose you know, outrageous outfits or whether they chose like the fancy jewels and things like that, or they brought you know, loot or lyre or those kinds of things in order to entertain him. Um, but these, these women, they were spending the night with the king in the biblical sense, and then they were placed in a separate harem to await the king's decision. So they all went to this new harem, this new place to wait and see who the king chose to be the queen. So um, any woman that was not chosen might wait the rest of her life for the call from a king that would never, ever come. So there were a lot of reasons to be disappointed in the king and his plan to replace Vashti, but we must remember that this put Esther in a position to deliver her people. So yes, this is not a great thing, but God is working in the midst of it. We see that he gives Esther favor. We see that God is working um, in, in, in the midst of, of things. And so you might say, well, gives favor. What does that mean? Well, ultimately, um, from a human perspective, that would be favoritism. And favoritism is a constant reality in the world. You've probably run into it. It's either went for you or it's went against you, but you probably ran into favoritism at some point. That's what Esther was experiencing, but it was in her favor, and I believe that it was given by God himself. Esther was the favorite in this contest. We are not told of any specific actions that she took. She just appeared, and he to show favor on her. Um, but we know... Uh, from the examples of other scriptures that God calls sinful men to look upon his servants with favor because that's exactly what he did. This eunuch was not necessarily a follower of God, but he looked at Esther and he saw something that made him show her favor. So God was working in that man's heart even if that man never would turn his heart to God. So even surrounded by favoritism and sinfulness, we can trust that God will soften certain hearts so that we are able to serve him better. We might be in situations where everybody around us is lost, but God will open doors for us to continue to minister in certain areas and in certain ways. He will make that happen. We just have to trust Him uh, when He gives us those opportunities. So finally, let's look at the human action and the divine plan. So we're to the point that it is Esther's night to go and visit the king. Uh, and so when her night arrives, she displays great wisdom by depending upon Hegai to advise her on how to proceed. They said women could take anything from the harem that they wanted to when they went to the king, but she only took what he told her. And we also know that she would have gotten as much advice as she could from the maids that had been serving her. So she was prepared to go before the king, not trying to show jewels, um, because any woman can wear jewels. Not really trying to show that she can play an instrument, because most people, if they try hard enough, can learn to play an instrument. Um, Esther had the beauty that God had granted her and the favor that God was working uh, for her in the heart of the king. That's what she had. She walked in there with only the gifts that God had given her, and it was, it was enough. So they described the day 
the day would have been the month, the Hebrew months, you know, they're on a lunar calendar, so it would have been the Hebrew month that kind of crosses from December into January in our calendar. So it was a long winter night in the middle of the rainy season when Esther was brought before Xerxes. So you might, might be accurate to say it was a dark and stormy night. I don't know. This is not a ghost story, but it might have been accurate because it was during the rainy season. But it was a, it was a long, dark day, um, dark, long, dark nights. That's the kind of um, time that it was. And so the winter times, there's just not as much to do. The king was bored. Did this have something to do with his choice? We don't know. But what we do know is that the eunuch had chose this night to send Esther. For whatever reason, he felt like this was the right night to send Esther. And it was more God than him, but it was the right night. So we're told that the king loved Esther. He loved her more than all the others. One night's not enough time to develop like a mature emotional connection that lasts for a lifetime, but he probably was amazed by her beauty and her grace, whatever that was that drew her in. And it really does seem like the king immediately ended the contest declares Esther to be his new queen. It seems like from whatever, whoever was left, whatever was left, he entered the contest, declared her to be his king at that moment. So like every other event in the life of the king, he throws a great feast and declares a holiday. When you're a king, that's kind of what you're able to do is just throw a new party when something great happens or if you get too bored. Um, so what we do know is that for an undetermined amount of time, there was a remission of taxes and people received gifts from their king. So he, he you know, forgave them their taxes, sent out a stimulus pass, passage, package. Basically, this is Joe Biden. So anyway, we're, uh, we would easily um, read this passage and see a narcissistic king. Um, Y'all didn't hear that. See, a narcissistic king um, used uh, the lives of hundreds of women just to find the one that would bring him the most glory. That's, if you just read this, you say, okay, so this guy made a big you know, beauty pageant for himself so that he could find his own queen. It's like The Bachelor, right? Uh, just a whole bunch of pretty women comes to you know, his, his place to, to be pretty for him, and he gets to decide which one he wants to marry. You can see it from that perspective. But you also have to see it from the perspective that God ordained the, the contest, God ordained the process, God ordained the outcome, God made the plan. So in human terms, that's exactly what happened, but we have to remember that even among the evil plans of man, God is at work. When the king saw Esther, he sprang into action, ending his contest and declaring her to be the queen. Uh, but in this action, we can also see how the divine plan is coming into focus. He's putting his people in the positions that they need to be in. Already he's doing that. God has used all these human events to place a Jewish lady at the right hand of the Persian king. It is not an overstatement to say at that point, when she was made queen, she was made the most powerful woman on the earth. At that time, the Persian empire, that was the pinnacle of civilization. And she now had the ear of the king of the most powerful empire that the world had ever seen. So, just as the Lord had planned to save the Jews who lived in Susa, He has planned to save the lost in the world today. He has made that plan. You know, just like God is moving Esther into a position, but, but He had already had Mordecai in a position, He had already had things in place to get people where they needed to be, you may be in a position right now where He's actually moving you to where he wants you. If you say, well, I'm in a time of transition. I don't even know what God's doing. Well, you may not get to know yet, but he may be putting you right where he wants you to get you into a position to do his will. 
for Esther, ultimately, it was to bring about the deliverance of her people. The good news for you is you don't have to be the deliverer. He's already come. He's already done the work. He's already provided the way of salvation. All we have to do is tell people about it. That's what we have to do is tell people about Jesus. And he's going to put you in places where you can have conversations with individuals or with groups or that just your example itself can speak the gospel. But he is going to do that. And it really is no matter what evil plans are at play in the world, God is going to use people like you and me to spread the word of deliverance to his flock. God is going to find a way to declare the gospel through our lives. Sometimes it will be our words. Sometimes it will be our actions. I've seen as, as, you, as you read books, the Christians say, well, sometimes people say, oh, you've got to be a witness and you always got to be talking about Jesus. And other people say, well, witness every day of your life and if you have to, actually say some words. Um, and I've seen both people say that. Some people say, well, your example, your lifestyle, that's how people are going to follow Jesus. Other people say you have to clearly communicate the gospel in order to get it across. But what I really believe the truth is, is in that moment, God will help you know what to do. There are times where we do need to speak up and talk to people. And there are times where we need to just let our actions speak. We always need to be sure that what we do is consistent with the gospel. Proclaiming Jesus both word and deed, that's the important thing. You can't set hard and fast rules for how we communicate. When you look at this, God used a pagan beauty pageant to get his person in place. Who knows what he's going to use to move us around? It's almost like there is this giant chessboard. We're the pieces. And he is bringing us into places not to do harm, but to share the gospel with the people that he has prepared. And so what we have to do is just trust him. Listen for those opportunities. And, and when you're in a season where it seems like everything is changing and moving around hey, that's your beauty pageant, okay? That's just your beauty pageant getting you ready for the next place. Just know that God has a plan and that he will use you when the time comes. Because from the very beginning of your life, and if, if, if this is any indication, from way before that, he's had ready what he was going to do for you. So let's trust in Jesus and let's proclaim him every chance that we get. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much just for this time to gather together for a few minutes. And I pray that as we read these words, we can certainly look into your word and we can see that you're active. Even when we don't have a, a, a Bible verse that says what you did, we read a story and we see clearly your actions. I pray that you help us as we live our lives to pay attention to your actions, to see what it is you're doing in our lives. It's so easy to despair if things aren't going the way that we want them to go. Remind us that it's not always our choice, that we have to depend on you, that we have to prepare to be surprised by what you do. I ask that we would always have our heart full of the gospel so that at any time, at any moment, when your plan has been laid out in front of us, we can declare Jesus. Make us faithful to that. And Lord, I know that there will be opportunities. And in the end, we will even understand what you've been doing. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Be with us as we do go our separate ways and let us always celebrate you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.